Back in the year 2000, Ann and I took a short-term mission team to Almaty, which is the capital of the predominantly Muslim nation of Kazakhstan. We had had a tremendous experience the year before in St. Petersburg, Russia. Many of the same people went back with us. And we were led by Dr. Dan Burns, pioneer missionary with EPC World Outreach, who actually ended up beginning his own presbytery in Kazakhstan and his own seminary. This was early in his ministry there, and he wanted us to train 15 young Kazakhs in evangelism. It was simply the best mission experience of my entire life. Uh, We went on a Saturday, we arrived there on Saturday, and then Sunday night we showed after much publicity, the Jesus film, in Russian, of course. Uh, There were more than 200 people who attended. Many of them had never seen a movie before. And they filled out these cards, response cards. 75 of the 200-plus said that they would like to talk with somebody about what they saw. And so, for the next 10 days, the team training Kazakh uh, young Christians visited those 75 people. Fifty of them prayed to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. And the following Sunday, they began a new church called Orbita, which means in Russian, suburb. The church of Orbita is still going on today. I want to tell you a brief story about the most amazing thing that happened during those 10 days. One of our team members was an elder, Ron Hopkins, and his first call was to a babushka. That word means in Russian, grandmother. It's predominantly the babushkas who wore those scarves in America. That's why it became known as a babushka. But this babushka lived in an apartment complex that was largely retired people. Uh, Ron and his translator and trainee went to the apartment and They began the presentation of Evangelism Explosion. Uh, You're probably familiar with the diagnostic question. If you were to die tonight and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And this babushka said, I've tried to live a good life. I've gone to church, et cetera, et cetera. And then Ron began the presentation, uh, grace, man, God, Christ, faith, the five points of the EE presentation. And he just started with grace. He quoted the verses I'm about to read, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God and not of works so that no one can boast. And he began to explain that, and the woman went, stop. Universal gesture for stop. And she ran out of the apartment. Ron thought that he had said something that offended her, and so he turned to the translator and said, Did I say something wrong? And she shrugged her shoulders. Well, about three minutes later, the babushka came back in the apartment with four other babushkas, her friends. All five of these women had been forced by the Russian government to have abortions. It's not as well known, but the Russian government, even before the Chinese government, instituted the one church policy, particularly for the satellite states. They didn't want them to get too large. And so if you had a second child, the child was taken from you, 
placed in an orphanage, you were fined and put in prison. And so many, many women in Kazakhstan were forced to have abortions, including these five. A Russian Orthodox priest had told them all that they were going to hell because they had an abortion. And when Ron shared with them the gospel of grace, that it's by faith, not works, that you are saved, they wept during the entire presentation. At the end, when he asked them if they wanted to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, they all said, da, yes. And they said, spasiba, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was a small indication in the history of many indications that the gospel of grace changes lives. It changes history. Paul writes, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, to articulate powerfully the good news of God's grace. Listen to the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the truth that changed the world, literally. The Reformation changed all of history, and the truth is that Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Now, Martin Luther is usually credited with inventing the solas, that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, <clears throat> by the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, the five solas. But it really was a rediscovery. Three earlier church fathers Athanasius, Augustine, and Aquinas all taught that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. The church had lost that truth, and they were literally selling God's forgiveness. And that's why Luther nailed his theses to the church wall in Wittenberg. It is the single most important doctrine that we hold as Christians. The solas. But it begins, the Bible's very realistic, it begins with bad news. And the bad news is this, 
that you and I and all of humanity are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not only were we not the children of God, Paul says we were the children of wrath. God's wrath is poured out, Romans 1 says, against all unrighteousness. We were captive by our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, some people believe that we were not so far gone that we could not reach out and grab a life preserver of the gospel. It's as though God were throwing us a life preserver. But the passage doesn't say we were sick or almost dead. It says we were dead. Dead people cannot respond. Dead people are unable to grasp what God has offered. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Unbelievers are kind and loving to their parents. They keep their grass nice. But what the doctrine of total depravity means is that every part of our being has been affected and, in, in effect, made impotent by sin. Our minds have been affected. Our bodies have been affected. Our emotions are affected by sin, and our wills are affected by sin. Therefore, we are unable in our own strength to please God or even to receive the gift of grace. The old saying is that most people can't find God for the same reason that a, pol that a criminal can't find a policeman. They are not looking for him. Why? Because his presence convicts them, and therefore no one seeks after God. I was once discussing the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election with a young man, and he kept saying the same thing. It's not fair. It's not fair. And finally, I'd taken all I could, and I said, stop. You do not want God to be fair. Because if God were fair, the biblical term is just. In his justice and fairness, we are all going to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect salvation. We are going directly to hell. Our sins deserve that punishment. You do not want God to be fair. You want him to be merciful. And friends, that's the great news of this passage. Listen to verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, this is a Greek construction, you, he made together, alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul almost always pairs those two words together, grace and mercy. Mercy means we do not receive what we deserve. Grace means we receive what we don't deserve. The Greek word for mercy refers back to the Old Testament. Are you familiar with the mercy seat? The mercy seat was in the Ark of the Covenant. If you read 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know about the Ark of the Covenant and how powerful it is. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in their temple, the Temple of Dagon. And it was next to the idol of Dagon. And the Dagon idol kept falling and its head would fall off. And it would roll down the temple. And then the Philistines would make another idol and they'd put it on the pedestal and it would fall off. And they were slow learners. Then... Philistines started dying, and some smart Philistines said, you know what, let's take the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, and they gave it back. Well, the mercy seat was in the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. It sat between the two golden cherubim. One day a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. If anyone else entered the Holy of Holies, they would be killed immediately. But the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. It was a symbol of God mercifully forgiving the sins of Israel. Do you know that they tied a rope around the leg of the high priest? Just in case... God didn't accept his offering and struck him down. They could drag him back out. Well, Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, is our hilasterion, our mercy seat. And it's not once a year. It's every day and in every way God's mercy is poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is also the source of God's grace. We are saved by grace through the gift of God, the gift of faith. Now you, I'm sure, know that grace means undeserved favor. The third verse of the classic hymn, Rock of Ages, expresses it eloquently. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. If we try to add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross, we subtract. Most Americans, most of the people you know, would answer that diagnostic question when God says, how should I let you into heaven? This way. I've tried to live a good life. I go to church. I try to follow the Ten Commandments. I once had a guy say that to me. I try to follow the Ten Commandments. And I said, well, could you, could you list the Ten Commandments for me? And he said, well, I, I haven't memorized them. And I said, well, what ones do you remember? He says, well, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I said, um, have you ever looked upon a woman lustfully? Because Jesus says, if you have, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he says, well, yeah, everybody does that. Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever failed to give a full day's work to your employer for your pay? That's stealing, according to the Bible. Oh, yeah, I'm sure everybody does that. He was counting on his salvation for ten commandments that he did not know and admitted that he did not keep. And that is true of everyone who believes 
that somehow their goodness will get them into heaven, that they earn or deserve salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not your own doing. It's the gift of God and not of works. George Barna has surveyed Americans for years and years, and depending on when the survey's asked, between 65 and 75% of Americans, the highest number is, is close to Easter, will answer yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead? Seven out of ten Americans say yes to those propositions. Now, does that mean that seven out of ten Americans are born-again Christians? No. I believe that running three miles a day and avoiding foods with a high sugar content are good for my health. Do I run three miles a day and avoid sugar? That would be a big no. Intellectual assent is nothing. You can say, I believe the facts that Jesus is God, rose from the dead, without having a relationship with him. There's a world of difference, literally, between I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. The former is a statement of intellectual assent. The latter is a statement of heart commitment. And that heart commitment is what God calls us to make. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God and not of works so that no one can boast. But once we've received that gift of faith in Jesus Christ, this passage tells us that we will do good works. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The most popular formula in America is this, faith plus works equals salvation. The majority of people who go to church believe that, and they are dead wrong. Faith plus works equals salvation means that I have done something at least to contribute to my salvation, and therefore, I have at least some reason to boast. No, the biblical formula is faith equals salvation plus works. If you're genuinely saved, you will, in fact, do good works. Now, good works in Scripture are always responsive. God initiates and we respond. 1 John 4.19 says, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. I want to give two applications from this passage in terms of the good works God is calling us to do. And the first is mercy. Because 
you have received God's great mercy, he calls you to be merciful. I want to ask you an important question. I really want you to think about this and answer it in your own heart honestly. Is there anyone in your life that you have failed to forgive? I've heard church members, Christians say, I can never forgive him or her. And my response always is, you must. We prayed a prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. People say things like, well, they've never asked for forgiveness. You know what? I have committed so many sins that I'm not even aware I committed or that I didn't even think were sinful, but are sinful in the sight of God. Therefore, I haven't asked for forgiveness, but His grace, His mercy covers my sin. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. What it generally boils down to for many people is they don't deserve to be forgiven. Do you? Mercy is by its very nature undeserved. We don't receive what we deserve. I call you to look at your heart and to forgive anyone who has sinned against you from the heart. And then, since we are saved by grace, God calls us to be gracious. Ann and I have a friend who was a member of a church in Florida, and several months ago, the pastor of that church came to his session and said, I'm really struggling with the issue of internet pornography, and I want you to pray for me. Rather than the session saying, thank you, pastor, for being so honest with us. In fact, there are some of us, if statistics are true, who are also struggling with that issue. We will provide a counselor for you. We'll pay for it. And we'll make sure you get into a support group so that you can overcome this problem. Instead, the session said, you'll announce your resignation on Sunday, and we will give you and your family one month to vacate the church manse. Is the church... A museum for saints or a hospital for sinners? Is this a fellowship of grace or a fellowship of judgment? One person said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Folks, may we never forget that we were hopeless sinners saved by grace. And that we continued to be sinners who are maintained by the grace of God. We're not there yet. We all fall short and struggle. We need to be gracious to one another. Praise God. Praise God for the gospel of grace. 